good morning. Questions, questions, we've all got questions, right? In fact, the truth of the matter is we probably have a whole lot more questions than we have answers. And the problem is that some of our questions that we have, we don't really feel comfortable answering them in certain contexts because we think, boy, what are they going to think about me if I ask that question? Am I going to sound dumb? Am I going to sound like I don't have much faith? But what we want the church of Jesus to be is a place where all questions are welcome, that there really is no dumb questions. And if you approach us with a question, we might not have the answer for you right now, but given some time, we can produce an answer for you that is very logical and reasonable. And so today, we are going to be answering the question about the compatibility of faith and science. Because here's what I believe. If you would go up to the average person on the street and ask them this question, What's your opinion of modern-day science? Most people respond by saying, it's amazing, it's incredible, it's fantastic. It's a really great time to be alive in the world. And I think that they're right. I think that all of us would agree in here today that our lives are significantly better and enhanced because of advances in modern science, right? Whether that's from a medical standpoint, communications, technology, even nutrition, our lives are better because of advances that we've made in science. However, there's some people that have some other things to say about this when it comes to faith. Some of you might remember the late scientist, the astronomer Carl Sagan. How many of you know who that is when I mention Carl Sagan? Okay. Here's what Carl Sagan said. He said, if you want to save your child from polio, you can pray for them or inoculate them. He was suggesting science over faith. There was a Syrian poet who lived over a thousand years ago, and here's what he said. The world holds two classes of men. Intelligent men without religion and religious men without intelligence. So think about that. What do you think about that? Do you think we've come to a place in our world today where because of science, it's made faith irrelevant. That do we really have to check our brain at the door if we're going to be a follower of Jesus? Do we have to ignore everything that science has to teach us? So some of you who are here today, you've maybe had a friend ask you at a time or another, aren't science and faith incompatible? And you really didn't know how to answer them. It's like you knew what you believed. You just didn't really know why you believed it. So my contention this morning is this, that when it comes to science and faith, it's not an either or, I have to choose science or I have to choose faith. I think it's a both and. And you're going to see why here in just a minute, okay? But let me give a little disclaimer, a little disclosure as we go further into this conversation. I am not a scientist. So show me some grace, okay? Show me some grace, okay? Because I am not a scientist. Now, let me get started by, by sharing with you this idea. That I think that the reason why that a lot of Christians or people of faith, why we dismiss or sometimes completely reject scientific argumentation is because we feel a deep sense of, of loyalty to the idea of creationism. And I believe it's wise to be loyal to the idea of creationism because Scripture says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But sometimes 
we can be so loyal to an idea that we refuse to listen to other things from the scientific world. And we'll call them stupid, dumb, ignorant, even demonic. And when we approach things that way, friends, we are the ones on the losing end in that. Because the church has had more than one time egg on its face when it comes to issues of science or faith. Some of you probably learned in high school about a man who lived centuries ago, a man named Galileo Galilei. He was an astronomer, a mathematician, but also a very devout Christian. And he came up with this wild, crazy idea one time through his calculations of what he was observing going on in the skies that maybe the sun and not the earth was the center of our solar system. And because that idea did not fit into the teachings of the Catholic Church of the day and time, which taught that the solar system was geocentric and not heliocentric, Galileo was persecuted, he was called a heretic, his teachings were called heresy, and yet we know that as advances in science continued, who was proved right? Galileo was. It was Galileo himself, again, not just a scientist, but a Christian scientist, who argued the idea that God had given humanity two books. On one book, he gave us creation, the natural world. And this other book that he gave us was Scripture. Now, Galileo wasn't the first person to have that idea. He was just the first person to put it in those words that God has given us two books. Do you know who had the first idea around this, who articulated it first? It was the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Well, here's a question for you. How do you see invisible qualities? They're invisible, right? They can't be seen. But Paul tells us how. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So what Paul's saying is this. If you look at that which is visible, the created world around us, the universe around us, then you're going to be able to understand some of the invisible qualities of God. You're going to understand more about his power, his divine attributes. And Paul is saying here that these things are so clearly communicated throughout creation that mankind is without excuse and that you and I and every human who's ever lived is going to be held accountable simply for what we see and what it testifies to. So Galileo looked at verses like Romans 1.20 and said... God is the creator of the universe. And one of the books that God has written to give to mankind to reveal who he is, is the book of nature, of creation. But there's a second book, right? One that we would call scripture. Where God has breathed life into these writings that men made over a period of 1,500 years. And these collective writings put together gave us a supernaturally unique book called the Bible. And if creation testifies generally about who God is, the Bible that you have and I have 
testifies specifically to who God is. So creation says there is a God, and the scripture says, here's who he is. Here's his character. Here's his plan. Here's how he can be known. So, when you take the book of creation and the book of scripture and put them together, do you know what you have? You have the collective revelation of Almighty God himself. And you know, scientists and theologians really are doing the exact same thing. When I went to Bible college, one of the very first things I learned about was something called exegesis. I said, Jesus, what? Exegesis. And it has nothing to do with really Jesus, the Lord, okay? Exegesis is a term. And here's simply what it means. To exegete something means to draw out of, okay? And as a theologian, as a preacher, one of my jobs to do as I study Scripture is to draw out of it the meaning, the truth, what does God want us to know based upon this text. That's what it means to exegete. And science really does the same thing with nature and the cosmos and everything all around it. And they do it through test tubes and mathematical formulas and all sorts of things. They're trying to draw meaning. They're trying to draw truth about the world in which we live. And let me tell you something, folks. This is not a war between science and faith. It is a joint effort from both to reveal to us who God is and how he has revealed himself to us. And here's the good news I have for you. Because God wrote both the book of creation and nature, because he wrote that one, and because he wrote and inspired the Holy Scriptures, you can have confidence in knowing that they are not going to contradict one another. Amen? So, first we need to understand, really, what is the purpose of Scripture? Let me tell you what the purpose of Scripture is not. The purpose of Scripture is not to be a scientific textbook. So let's not require it to be one, all right? The, the Bible that you have and that I have was written for a specific purpose. And that is so that we can know the nature and the character of our Creator and how He has revealed Himself to mankind. In fact, we can really take cues from the Apostle John when he wrote in his Gospel. Here's what he said about the purpose of, this is why I'm writing this letter. This is why I'm penning all this down. Here's what he says in John 20, 30. He says there, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these things are written, here's why I'm writing all this down, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's saying, here's my purpose statement for this gospel. And it's really the purpose statement of the whole New Testament. That we might read who Jesus was, what Jesus did, what Jesus said about himself. And that as we put all these things together, that ultimately we might believe in him and that our life might be changed now and forever. That's why it was written. But it was not written necessarily to be a textbook. Because if it was, here's how I think Psalm 23 might read. The Lord is my chemistry teacher. I shall not fail. He makes me analyze carbon compounds. He restores my calculations. 
He leads me beside periodic tables and guides me in the paths of experimentation. It doesn't say that, does it? Here's what it says. The Lord is my what? And he leads me beside what? And he restores what? My soul. So here's what scripture says about God. He's this shepherd father who wants nothing more than to have his relationship restored with his rebellious, sinful children. That that's the purpose of, of scripture. So let's understand something as well, though, okay? That even though the Bible is not necessarily meant to be a science textbook, it is thoroughly consistent with science. It is scientifically accurate and does not contradict what we know to be true in the field of science. So I believe Genesis 1-1 to be true. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe that God created man and he breathed into him the breath of life. I believe that through what we would call faith, but I also believe it for some logical reasons now that I'm going to give to you, and I want you to write these down so that whenever you have friends who question you about these things, you can take it from a scientific view and not just a faith view alone, okay? So get ready to write down in your bulletin, okay? Some of these terms are going to sound a little egg-headed and big, but we're going to boil it down and reduce it down to something very simple that you can understand, okay? The first one is this. It's called specified complexity okay what this says is that a living system is specifically designed for life and function so it looks at a living thing and it looks at the environment and the atmosphere in which that living thing exists and it looks at all the the variables and the factors at play and it, and it says wow that is absolutely remarkable how this thing lives and the factors that's going on so that life can be sustained and so that life can reproduce and life and can continue on. It's remarkable. Could that have happened simply naturally? Or is there something behind that? Was that intentionally done? And there's all sorts of evidence all around us. All we got to do is look at how fine-tuned the universe is for life. Look at the gravitational force in the universe. Look at the ratio of protons to electrons. Look at the mass density in the universe, the speed of light in the universe. And scientists will tell you that you make just the slightest adjustment to any of these factors, and you and I aren't alive. Life ceases to exist. It's lights out. Just like that. But these things are set up in such a way that it makes life possible in our universe. The age of our sun is the exact age that it needs to be to sustain life. If our sun were bigger, we would fry. If it were smaller, we would freeze to death. Look at the protective atmosphere covering the earth. It's built and designed in such a way that it allows the heat and the sunlight into the earth to provide photosynthesis for the plants that in turn create oxygen all around. It provides environments where human beings can live and dwell and not freeze to death or not die of heat 
exposure. And yet that same atmosphere, while it lets the good things in, it keeps out the harmful gamma rays and x-rays that would destroy us with just limited exposure to them. Think if you would as well. 335 million miles from planet Earth is a planet called Jupiter. And Jupiter is so big and massive that we know that almost 1,400 planet Earths could fit inside of Jupiter. Then did you know that scientists tell us that Jupiter is so big, because it's so big, it has massive gravitational pull. So much so that it kind of serves as an interstellar vacuum cleaner, sucking in all sorts of meteors and comets that scientists would tell you would more than likely hit planet Earth had it not been for our big brother Jupiter out there pulling all these things in. So aren't you glad that God put Jupiter where he put Jupiter? And then you look at other things. You look at things like Earth's orbit around the sun, the axis or the tilt on which the earth finds itself, the speed at which the earth rotates, the ratio of nitrogen to oxygen in our atmosphere. You look at the size of the earth. If the earth was much bigger, the gravity it would create would squash us. If it were much smaller, it wouldn't have enough gravity to keep us from floating away. But here we are, we're not smushed, and we're not floating away, are we? And to my knowledge, scientists still haven't figured out to this day where gravity comes from, even though it is the dominant force in all the universe. But you know, and I know, where it comes from, right? Our creator. So you put all these factors into one big pot, and you stir it around, you say, what? are the chances of this all happening and coming together so that we can live and breathe and have life? Let me tell you what the chances are. Dr. Hugh Ross, a noted and respected Christian astrophysicist, I think he was on the 700 Club maybe this last week, maybe some of you saw him on television. Here's what he said about the chances of life being found on another planet that could be sustained like planet Earth sustains us. He said the chances of finding that in our universe are one in a trillion, 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 trillion. One in a trillion to the 11th power. And yet, here we are, right? You know what that's called? Specified complexity. Maybe you heard the story about the scientists who were all gathered together one day and they made the declaration, we need to tell God that we don't need him anymore. So one of them says, I'll be the one that tells God. So the scientist meets with God and says, God, we've decided because of all the wonderful, marvelous things that we can do, the miraculous things we can do with technology right now, we don't need you anymore. So it's okay for you to go away, God, and just kind of leave us alone. God says, well, okay, if that's how you want to have it. But before I go, let's have a human-making contest. The scientist says, okay, that sounds great. God says, but we're going to do it the way I did it back in the day when I made Adam from the dust of the earth. 
scientist says, sure, that's fine. So the scientist bends down to the ground, scoops up a, a pile of dirt, and God says, no, 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 no. You got to get your own dirt. Which leads to the next part we're going to talk about, and that is irreducible complexity. In everyday language, here's what this simply means. That if you and I come across something that is enormously complex, that it's very rational and logical for us to conclude that there was an intelligent being behind it. Okay? And let me point to something to make this argument that every single person in here has. That one inch thing next to our nose called our eyeball. The human eyeball is an amazing, amazing creation of God. It is able to look up to the starry skies at night and see a star that's shining billions of miles away. And then in a fraction of a second, can look at that person sitting across the view and pick out that speck of pepper that's stuck between their teeth. Science is amazing, but it has not been able to reproduce the, the refocusing capabilities of the human eye. Did you know that the eyeball that you have has 130 million parts intricately woven into it, sending millions of impulses per second to your brain, enabling this thing that we call vision. So what makes more sense, the fact that this eyeball with rods and cones and lenses and retinas and irises and corneas and all these millions and millions and millions of parts working together to enable this thing called vision. What makes more sense, that that's the product of an intelligent designer who had a purpose behind this, or that it came as a result of just some dust and some gases coming together, creating a, a cosmic explosion, and an eyeball eventually got created out of that? Even Charles Darwin... We all learned about him in biology class, right? The father of the evolutionary theory. He wrote a book called The Origin of the Species. Here's what Charles Darwin says. He says, to suppose that the eye with so many parts all working together could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. So Darwin, one of his stumbling blocks to the evolutionary theory was the human eye. You say, Charles Darwin said that? Absolutely he said that. It's just like when you and I see a watch. We find a watch on the ground. We assume that behind a watch is a watchmaker. And I'm here to tell you what, folks. The human eye is a million times more complex than any ordinary wind-up watch. Would you agree? Let's pretend something else. Let's pretend that you and I are on a hike. And we're hiking through the Black Hills of South Dakota. And we turn around a corner and all of a sudden there's a mountain with four faces on it. And somebody says, would you look at that? There's four faces on that mountain up there. How in the world did that happen? And somebody else in the group says, well, you know, over millions of years of wind, rain, erosion, and ice... It just happened to appear like that. And you say, really? Because I got $6.05 in my pocket. And the guy on the $5 bill looks like that guy. And the guy on the $1 bill looks like that guy. And the guy on the nickel looks like that guy. And I don't know who that fourth guy is. But if you're telling me 
that those four faces just appeared over time and with different circumstances happening, I got a problem with that. Because I believe a more logical explanation is that somebody had to have carved that into that mountainside. And that's the argument, friend, for irreducible complexity, for intelligent design, that we look at something that's enormously complex and we come to the conclusion and we're intellectually honest to say, you know what, I just don't think that could have happened by chance. I think that there was somebody with a design and a will and a purpose behind this that led to this result. So here's the question. Does the existence of intelligent design imply the existence of an intelligent designer? Listen to how the psalmist says this. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day after day, they pour forth speech. They're telling a story. They're making statements. Night after night, they reveal knowledge to us based upon the things that we see. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So here's what the psalmist is saying. If you have any doubt about origin or existence or where we came from, just open your eyes and experience creation. Ponder all the complexities and the systems and the details and, and of how everything is working together and is oftentimes contingent upon one another. And the psalmist, the amazing thing is, he was able to say this writing with very, very, very limited knowledge scientifically. Here you and I are in this day and age where we have these amazing discoveries that should lead us even to be more awe-inspired by our Creator. But it seems often that because of the pride of the human heart, it leads many in the opposite direction. So look up into the heavens. Calculate the odds, the chances of all this happening by chance. Again, when you consider the human eye, 130 million uh, pieces inside, sending millions of impulses to the brain, enabling us to have vision. When you consider this thing beating in our chest, the human heart, 10 ounces of flesh, and yet, under ordinary circumstances, will last 75 years pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping with zero maintenance and zero lubrication. Your human heart, do you know how much blood it will pump in your lifetime if you live to be average age? 1.5 million, not gallons, not liters, barrels of blood. 200 tanker cars on a train is how much blood your heart will pump in your lifetime. When I consider the fact that the human brain, the human brain, the one in your head and the one in my head, has more electrical connections inside of it than all the kitchen appliances in the world. When I consider these things, the design, the, the order, the complexity 
of these things and a thousand other things, it points to an intelligent designer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe this because of specified complexity, irreducible complexity, and we can believe it because of what we call biological information. In 1953, James Watson and Francis Crick discovered that famous double helix that you and I know as the oxyribonucleic acid, otherwise known as what? DNA. And there's no scientific discipline in the world today that can yet explain the complexity of DNA. The complexity of how in one human being there is more information in you and in me than is in all the information in all the books in the whole Library of Congress. And the more scientists look into the complexities of DNA, the more that they are convinced that there was an intelligent design behind it. Some of you might have heard of a renowned scientist, um, lived the most part of his life in the 20th century, but his name was Anthony Flew. All right, I've got a picture of him here, all right? Here's what he says. He says, what I think the DNA material has done is it is shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. Do you know why that's so remarkable that that man came to that conclusion? Because for the vast majority of his life, he was a passionate, ardent defender of atheism. Wrote books on it. Defended it. But in 2004, he self-proclaims that he went from atheism to what he called a mild form of theism. He didn't really know what to do with Jesus. He didn't know that if who he would call God even cared about his creation. But he came to the intelligent conclusion that there was an intelligent designer behind it all. And you know how old he was when he came to that conclusion? 81 years old. And much of the reason he came to that conclusion was because of this. These three arguments. Specified complexity, irreducible complexity, and biological information. What I just shared with you. So let me end with a question. Why is this conversation important? Here's why. Because the more you study these things, the more you expose yourself to these things, here's what you realize. I don't have to commit intellectual suicide to be a follower of Jesus. It doesn't have to be an either or, it's a both and. And in fact, the more we learn about the wonders and the intricacies and the complexities of creation and how it all works together and how it all sustains life, it gives us more reason to celebrate and glorify our creator. Here's another reason why it's important to have these conversations. We've got young people here today who are in school. We've got young people who love science. They love math. They love chemistry. They love physics. There's not many of them, but there's some. 
right? And if that's you today as one of our young people, this is like your favorite sermon. Your heart is beating right now because you just love delving into all this stuff, right? Let me just tell you this morning that if God gave you that kind of brain, that kind of intellect where you can work with science and with math and chemistry and you have a passion about that, do you know what we need in this world? We need in this world more young men and young women who go into the field of science and they enter into the conversation with this awe-inspired worship of God who can tell the rest of the world, oh, 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 all the amazing things that we've discovered and what it tells us about this amazing God who created it all. So if that's you as a young person, you go to school, you get your degree, and you come out and you glorify your creator with what you have learned. Amen? For the rest of us, let's make sure we aren't just students of one book. Let's make sure we also explore the book of creation of the world around us as it testifies night and day, Scripture says, to the evidence and the goodness and the love of our Creator. Now, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you that you've given us minds to think and that through thinking and through discoveries and through the things that you reveal to us, through creation, through the world, through the universe, Lord, it tells us these things about you and who you are and how you work and what you've done and what a mighty God you are. So thank you, Father, that we can say that our, that our faith is rational as well because of the evidence all around us. And help us, Lord, to be students of both your word, the written scriptures, and the unwritten word, the world of creation and nature around us, Father. So thank you for your goodness and that you gave us minds to think about these things and contemplate and to formulate and to, and to get to some answers that the human heart has. So Lord, thank you for allowing us to come today to worship you in your splendor and majesty and to have the creation around us join us in that worship. We pray, Lord, that today has exalted you and brought you the glory that you so deserve. In Christ's name, amen.